You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security podcast. I am Nicole, one of your moderators and a member of the committee staff. Your other moderators today are national security attorneys here moderating as individuals and not on behalf of their agencies or firms. You can find more about the Standing Committee online or join our listserv at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. And I'm Yvette, another one of your moderators. This podcast will discuss national security issues in the news and provide critical baseline information about the issues for new lawyers and lawyers that have been practicing national security law for years. And I'm Alisa, another one of your moderators. The ABA Standing Committee is comprised of seasoned national security lawyers and law professors. The committee has spent the last 55 years keeping lawyers and the public informed and aware of the most pressing questions in national security law. Join us at one of our monthly speaker programs or at our annual conference in November to hear more about what's happening today and what will happen tomorrow on these issues. We will deliver sober, well-reflected, unbiased updates on the hottest topics in the world of national security law. But never boring. And during the podcast, you can find links to the Black Letter Law and articles on today's topic at AmericanBar.org forward slash NatSecurity and in the notes to this podcast. In addition, you can find links to other books, learned treatises, and academic articles on today's topics on our website. At the end of this podcast, please drop us a note at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org or find us on Twitter at ABANATSEC. We welcome your feedback. Okay, today we continue our series on private national security law with an amazing student and professor of a hot private national security law topic, economic sanctions. From North Korea to Russia to Iran, sanctions are everywhere. Indeed, there are few foreign policy crises that have faced the United States over the past decade to which some policymaker has not suggested that sanctions are part of the response. And very often, presidents seem to have agreed, by some measures, increasing the use of the tool by more than 300% just since the year 2000. To take us through the ins and outs of this instrument, our guest today is Adam Smith, a partner with a law firm very lucky to have him, Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher, where Adam practices alongside legal lions like Ted Olson. Adam, welcome. We're honored to have you here today. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Adam, let me give our listeners a little background on you. You attended Harvard Law School, Oxford University, and Brown. During the Obama administration, you served on the National Security Council under Ambassador Power, where you were the Director for Multilateral Affairs. You were also the Senior Advisor to the Director of the Office of Foreign Assets Control, which is the component of the U.S. Treasury Department principally charged with implementing and enforcing economic sanctions. When you were in government, you traveled the world to help implement and enforce economic sanctions. You frequently chaired the Treasury delegation to the European Union and the G7 to negotiate the implementation of parallel Russia sanctions. No small task, given much of Europe's dependence on natural gas from Russia. And you also worked on the Iranian nuclear deal, including the sanctions relief, as well as on sanctions relief for Cuba and Myanmar, and the imposition of enhanced sanctions on Syria. That's all true. (laughs) All right. Let's orient our listeners to this law. Uh, the International Emergency Economic Powers Act. Can you give us a, a little history here? What 
event or events motivated the Congress to give the president this incredibly wide reaching authority? It, in some respects, uh, it was a question not of giving the president this authority, but limiting this authority. Uh, the ability for presidents or executives around the world to limit commerce as a tool of war or a tool of force has always existed in the U.S. system. In fact, it's existed in almost every system. You go back to the ancient Greeks and their use of embargoes and blockades. Uh, but in the U.S. system, much like war powers more generally, for Congress, this authority has always existed in a very uncomfortable limbo. A limbo between re recognizing the executive is uniquely positioned to exercise sort of war powers authority, even in the context of limiting commerce. Uh, of course, the executive is unitary, it has access to information that, he, that the Congress doesn't, and of course, the executive can act quickly. And yet, Congress's belief that the executive should not be able to do so absent meaningful congressional oversight. So you take us back to the late 1970s when AIPA came around, the wake of Watergate, the wake of Vietnam, uh, Congress became concerned about the usurpation of congressional power via the president's foreign affairs powers. It wanted to establish a new law that balanced this need between the president's ability to quickly respond to crisis while maintaining this congressional oversight. There was a law in the books called the Trading with the Enemy Act, uh, TWIA, which had existed since, about, since World War I, 1917, I believe, and it gave the president this broad power to restrain trade with countries hostile to the United States. The problem was that there wasn't much congressional oversight here. And so what AIPA tried to do is strike this balance. It wanted to, to allow the president to continue to exercise this power, but required what it thought was going to be robust congressional oversight. And so the way they did this was actually quite intriguing. AIPA basically says to the president, you have essentially unfettered authority to impose restrictions on commerce for those who are adverse to U.S. interests. However, to do so, you need to bring Congress in. You need to declare a national emergency uh, and renew that national emergency every year. That's a national emergency to Congress. Uh, but national emergency, of course, is not defined. And the law requires the president just state that national emergency is, quote, with respect to an unusual or extraordinary threat outside the U.S., which threatens the national security, foreign policy, or economy of the U.S. And then once that's declared, the president can identify actors associated with that emergency and freeze any property of theirs that's in the United States, prohibit U.S. persons undertaking transactions with them, or limit transactions with identified companies or economic sectors. And all of this can be done with essentially, with incredibly low evidentiary threshold. The president can identify people based solely upon a reason to believe. Right? This is not a judicial act. There's no beyond a reasonable, uh, reasonable doubt. It's not even a penalty. Right? It's an administrative act that the president is, 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 is imposing. And as a legal matter, it's implemented not to punish, but to change behavior. As such, it is inc there's incredible deference here because it's a national security space and it's administrative. Uh, and so the result of all of this has been, and this is why I sort of say the ostensibly robust congressional oversight, is that since 1977, presidents have been allowed to sort of be unfettered as to what they define as national emergency, right? So you've got issues that are clearly emergencies, at least in the way I view the world, uh, North Korean or development of nuclear weapons, terrorism, etc. That has been declared a national emergency and allowed AIPA sanctions, but also those issues that are serious by any measure, but are probably not national emergencies or threatening, like human rights violations in Venezuela, right? Also declared a national emergency and also allowing sort of AIPA sanctions uh, uh, sort of pursuant to them. And again, this is a bipartisan issue. Uh, Obama and Trump and Bush have all sort of done this in different ways, but they all use this tool. Uh, there's not a Democratic or Republican way to use sanctions. All presidents seem to use it uh, in increasing, increasing numbers. 
Now, why would the rest of the world care if the president can block transactions in the United States? It's a great question. I get asked it a lot.、Uh, and the reality is, the reason this is important, the reason people care about this, is because of the、uh, built-in advantages the U.S. has in global finance and the very unique ways that IEPA basically weaponizes that advantage. The reason this is such an important tool globally is because of the power of the U.S. dollar. Right, the U.S. dollar is involved in 85, 86 percent of global trade, and the way the U.S. dollar system works, the way a U.S. dollar transaction works, is that almost all U.S. dollar transactions, even those that take place between two non-U.S. parties, that transaction more often than not has to transit New York when correspondent banks take a, need to become involved in the transaction. So you have a bank in South Africa、uh, dealing in rand, of course, and a bank in India dealing in rupees. The way, if they're going to sell something in dollars to one another, right? South Africa is selling、uh, beef, let's say, to India. Maybe that's a bad example. At least, at least they're bad. <laughs> South Africa is selling South Africa is selling gold to India,、uh, and the way that that gold, of course, is priced in dollars. There's a bank in Johannesburg and a bank in in, in Mumbai that, that talk to one another, but the transaction actually doesn't go from Johannesburg to Mumbai. The transaction actually goes from the bank in Johannesburg to its correspondent bank in New York, the bank in Mumbai's bank. To the, its, its correspondent bank in New York, the two banks in New York talk to each other, dollarize the transaction, and then send out credits and debits to Mumbai and Johannesburg. The gold then goes straight to Mumbai. Doesn't actually that has, doesn't have to go via New York, fortunately. But the problem for people who are sanctioned is that the moment that transaction touches New York, anyone who's on the sanctions list can't have that transaction, right? Because the New York banks are under U.S. jurisdiction, and so anybody who's on the sanctions list can't be involved in those transactions. So as a functional matter. Anyone on the sanctions list is outside of global finance, right? And this is what's interesting about sanctions. Not only does it weaponize a tool of sort of U.S. sort of primacy when it comes to the U.S. dollar, it's a very unique tool of international of, of national security because it is entirely outsourced, right? It's outsourced to the private sector. When you think about other tools of national security, be it the DoD, be it intel operations, be it even development funds, those are done by the U.S. government. This tool is actually done by the private sector. So. That is a powerful tool. It's wide-reaching, and it seems highly dependent on our economic primacy and obviously the use of the dollar. But it must have failed, right? Have there been、uh, sanctions that have not achieved the goal、um, of like full capitulation of a hostile nation or actor? Of course, there are examples of the tool not working, and this usually happens when you're dealing with a situation in which the U.S. has imposed sanctions solely unilaterally, without any support of the U.N., the E.U., or others that match the U.S. measures. Or when the target of the sanctions、uh, has other ways to maintain access to either international financial system,、um, or the target perhaps doesn't really care.、Uh, I, there's a problem I call the Joseph Kony problem,、uh, where you've got you know this Joseph Kony is a terrible warlord in Central Africa who is on the sanctions list.、Uh, should he be on the sanctions list? Absolutely, he should be on many lists. But does it actually change his behavior? Is he actually no longer a terrible warlord because of sanctions? No, he doesn't have an ATM card, as far as we know. Doesn't have access or need to have access to the U.S. dollar. And so this is sort of one of the, the the envelope of sort of operations. You sort of are beyond that with respect to sanctions. There are some you know ways in order to、uh, punish people who do care about access to the dollar. There's a potential for massive penalties for non-compliance. That's right? right. That's right. So backing up the authority of the president to impose these sanctions, AIPA at its heart is a criminal statute,、uh, and the fines for violating AIPA、uh, can be absolutely massive. 
right? BNP Paribas, the largest bank in France, uh, faced this in 2014 when they saw a $9 billion fine for violating sanctions. Um, earlier this year, the Chinese uh, company ZTE, which makes uh, telecom equipment, was fined essentially, it was a billion dollars for violations of sanctions. There are even the potential for criminal penalties, right? There's even incarceration. It's never happened, uh, but it's certainly possible if people are sort of egregious enough. So when do sanctions work? What do you think the ingredients are to a successful sanctions deployment? So I think the, the it's, it's almost like it's a Goldilocks solution here, right? You need countries and or targets, frankly, that need access to the dollar, uh, but frankly are not so important to the U.S. such that the collateral consequences of sanctioning them would be uh, untenable or unbearable. Uh, so that's why, and we can talk about this in a moment, why Russia's sanctions are so challenging or sanctioning a jurisdiction like China would be incredibly challenging because of the collateral consequences. So what you need is an entity, an individual, or organization, a jurisdiction that wants to have access and indeed needs to have access to the U.S. dollar, but is small enough and, le- and not important enough in some respects to the U.S. so that you can really go after them. So there are two sanctions here that I think are very important from a success perspective. One is narcotics traffickers, right? A disproportionate number of the 5,000 plus entities on the sanctions list are narcotics traffickers, right? Because there's a huge counter-narcotics sanctions program that the U.S. has in place, incredibly active. Not only people get on the list for narcotics traffickers, people get off the list. In other words, they come in from the cold and tell OFAC, we're no longer engaging the activities for which we've been sanctioned, please get us off the list. And every year, hundreds do. And the reason that is the case is they are uniquely susceptible to these sanctions because narco-traffickers very often work in the U.S. dollar and need it. Narco-traffickers very often want to have a foot in both the legal world and the illegal world. And narco-traffickers, again, unlike many other jurisdictions, many other targets, rather, often want to have exposure in the United States, want to have a house in Florida, want to send their kids to college here, etc., etc. All of that means that they're incredibly susceptible to sort of saying, no, you can't come into the U.S., no, you can't engage the U.S. financial system, which is what sanctions do. Iran is another perfect example of this, right? Iran is a jurisdiction that's a large economy for the region, admittedly. It sells essentially two things. It sells oil and gas, both of which are dollarized. It's a small economy from the perspective of the U.S., and therefore we could afford to really pressure it with very limited collateral consequences to U.S. business or industry, uh, and yet they needed the dollar, right? So there was the pressure on both sides, right? They needed the dollar, and we could pressure them without impacting us or our allies primarily, and that's sort of what led, I think, to the outcome of the nuclear deal back in 2015, implementation in 2016. And now, frankly, our ability to continue pressuring them is, re- is relying upon this, again, this Goldilocks environment, which they're, they're, too, they're big enough to want the dollar and need the dollar because of what they do, and small enough that we can pressure them without really shooting ourselves in the foot, which is the big challenge. Has, has Congress tried to roll back this authority that it seems to have accidentally ceded to the executive? Congress hasn't decided to roll back AIPA as an authority, nor has Congress sort of questioned the ability for the president to determine what's a national emergency or anything like that. What you are seeing Congress do, starting in the late 1990s and really picking up pace in 2010 on, uh, is impose their own sanctions, right? They have sanctions-based legislation. Uh, And and that's interesting. Uh, It's challenging because what, what you're seeing there... You saw it in the Iran context especially, although there's Sudan sanctions, of course Cuba sanctions as well that are based in the executive, sorry, in the legislative rather than the executive. It really limits the president's authority and the president's discretion to sort of fiddle with sanctions on the, uh, sort of on the, on the margins and in some cases even remove them. Um, but even so, uh, what's interesting here is so long as Congress is using AIPA as the authorizing statute behind their new sanctions laws, be it Russia, be it against, uh, Iran or what have you, the way the executive has determined that, the way that they've interpreted that, rather, is that that also gives them the authority not just to enforce, but to calibrate. 
right? So that the ability for Congress to uh, to say sanctions on Russia shall remain as they are today until certain things happen uh, is fine. But the ability for them to say sanctions shall remain also allows the executive to calibrate sanctions on the back end under AIPA, right? They can license exemptions. Uh, there can be prosecutorial discretion to not enforce violations. So there's still a lot of ability, so long as AIPA is used, um, for the president to calibrate on the back end and to limit the ability for the, for the Congress to sort of really hermetically seal and, and, and sort of freeze in amber the sanctions as they currently stand. All right, let's talk about the risk. We've talked about the primacy of the dollar and the primacy of the country. Uh, and I know that there are particular statutes that define our economy as part of the critical infrastructure, which very clearly it, it would be under any, any definition. But are, are there risks to our national security or risks to the country or its economy by overusing this statute? Yeah, there, there are some risks. I mean, many people argue uh, that the overuse is, is sort of built in, and it's built in for a couple of reasons. One, and perhaps the most important one to recognize, is that unlike other national security tools like military force, uh, there's absolutely no doctrine associated with the use of sanctions. Right? So they, they're used, as, as I said, for true national emergencies, uh, North Korea, Iran, and for issues that are bad, but perhaps not national emergencies, like human rights violations in Venezuela. You add that to the fact that they can be deployed quickly and inexpensively. In fact, they're free. Right, because again, they're outsourced not to the Pentagon as for kinetic force, but rather to Wall Street, Citibank, and Bank of America. Uh, it is a recipe for uh, for overuse. And one of the big risks here, people argue, and I've certainly argued this to me when I go abroad to talk about sanctions, is that it could cause the movement away from the dollar. And so the concern is that certainly with respect to major states, China, Russia, maybe India, uh, the ability to sanction them is not just limited by, as I said, sort of this collateral consequence concern, but also by their ability to potentially find other means to clear trade, right? So now you can do a lot of renminbi clearing in Asia. Uh, and therefore, you don't need to use New York. You can do, you do things entirely outside the confines of New York State and therefore outside the confines of OFAC jurisdiction. So there is that possibility that people could move away from the dollar. I think it's a little bit overstated, uh, if only because people are going to move away th from the dollar anyway. Uh, and that's happening over time as Russia, as China, certainly as China becomes more and more, uh, more and more uh, important in the global economy, at some point there will be a situation in which the renminbi uh, will be an equal currency, maybe not in our lifetimes, but certainly at some point. And then there will be this interesting question about whether the ability to weaponize the dollar is particularly effective or impactful at all. So that's a concern. The other concern that I'm worried about is that Everything we do with sanctions is public, unlike, again, kinetic or intelligence sort of uh, actions, which may be sort of shrouded in secrecy, and everything you do for sanctions is public. So the playbook of how to do this is out there in the open, and there's no reason other countries with power, economic power, couldn't deploy them as well. So this is sort of an interesting tool that others can use, and one of the things that we have not really worked on at all is defenses. Right, So much as we can use the tool offensively and others can use it offensively, uh, I don't know if we've done much thinking about defenses to this. And so that's one of the other big challenges. Well, let's hope we make a judicious use out of this, Indeed. make good choices, uh, and uh, retain our reputation globally. We're going to post uh, some of the statutes that Adam has talked about today on the website for those of you who are not familiar with them. Uh, they're very interesting. You ought to take a look. Uh, and I, I want to ask you sort of two future-looking questions. The first one is, what, if anything, you'd like to offer on the future of sanctions? Well, I mean, the one that's pretty clear is that sanctions are not going away. And from a private sector law perspective, the implications here are huge for international banks, international companies, even individuals 
So long as you have cross-border exposure, and when some of that exposure is in the U.S. because you use the U.S. dollar or because you want to use the U.S. market, uh, there are people who are very interested in what the impacts of this will be and how to avoid the challenges. What if we suddenly started to ease sanctions? What could the consequences be, sort of generally? So it's one of the challenges of sanctions, right? Because you are outsourcing this to the private sector, you're saying Citibank, Bank of America, etc., impose these sanctions. When you then remove the sanctions, for them to work, that easing for to work, Citibank of America, Bank of America need to engage with the entities who are no longer sanctioned. But the problem is, because the president can impose sanctions so quickly, and because certain presidents, all presidents in some respects, can change their minds very quickly, many institutions that are supposed to re-engage in order for sanctions relief to work choose to sit on the sidelines until they have greater certainty or clarity that sanctions won't return. This, in, in short, is what you're seeing in Iran, whereby sanctions relief, which allowed many non-U.S. companies, non-U.S. banks to engage with Iran without exposing themselves to sanctions, many of them have sat on the sidelines because they don't have the clarity or the certainty that sanctions won't return, either from the U.N., or the U.S., or otherwise. And it would be a, a formidable undertaking to sort of reorient your entire compliance regime, I imagine. Absolutely. Huge amount of cost. And just to think through, I mean, the number of people in, in outside the U.S. that had to rethink about representations and warranties and loan agreements with respect to Iran ever since the relief of, of January of 2016 because of the nuclear deal, uh, it's very, very challenging them to think this through and how to sort of make it real. All right, Adam, it's been great to have you, but I have one last question. So, uh, and this is for our Young Lawyers Division. Um, let's take a moment, imagine if I am a, uh, a young lawyer, I am living in the Mission District in San Francisco, I'm trying to cultivate a practice as a lawyer for startups. Uh, do I have to worry about private national security law issues? Do I have to worry about sanctions? What should I be thinking about uh, based on your considerable experience in this area? I think you do, and I think there's a real opportunity here because of the business model that many of these startups have. And it's, in some respects, exactly opposite to sort of the old-fashioned sort of brick-and-mortar world. Uh, and you can think of it from the perspective of sort of East Coast versus West Coast. I mean, when the West Coast companies, the dot-coms, for instance, are trying to build a company, what they do is they come up with sort of a, an idea. They then want to get eyeballs to that idea, so you build eyeballs. And then you want to monetize those eyeballs. And then maybe you start thinking about regulation but after the fact. Whereas an old-fashioned company thinks about regulation first, or nearly first, and then it builds the company, and then you try to figure out how you get customers, right? It's a reversed model. And the problem with that for, for those, those folks in sort of this newfangled economy is that you build very, very quickly, but by the time you need regulation, it's not too late, but there may already be problems. And so what I think a, a smart-thinking lawyer can do is go into some of these companies. The fintech world is perhaps the, the richest opportunity here, but I think there are others as well, and start asking them to think out regulation earlier. Uh, and I think there's a real opportunity there to, for them to avoid problems rather than sort of come into them after they're already a multi-million, even billion-dollar company. Uh, and then you have issues with the Department of Justice and Treasury and others knocking on the door and wondering why they're not complying with these things that perhaps they didn't even know about or certainly didn't think about. It's been really great to have you. Let me ask you if you have any parting thoughts, words of caution, anything you'd like to leave our listeners with? I, I mean, if you're a young lawyer interested in uh, private national security law, I urge you to check out uh, Gibson Dunn's website at gibsondunn.com. Um, look for internships in the government, I mean, at Treasury, the State Department, or elsewhere. Anyone, the lots of different agencies have had equities here. Treasury, I think, is the lead agency. Other agencies, of course, are involved. And, of course, any number of NGOs or think tanks, the number of think tanks that have sort of 
thinking about sanctions now is, is significant, which is great because there's been very little written on the topic. And people are now, I think, really starting to think through some of these issues that we've been talking about, which is great. So what can we expect in the future? Is there a book in this? I feel like there is. There is. There is. I appreciate you asking. Uh, please stand and look out for a treatise on economic sanctions. Uh, we hope to be published later this year from BNA Bloomberg. Um, and in the meantime, our team at Gibson Dunn, uh, from globally around the world who think about these sanctions issues, we publish frequent alerts on sanctions issues, and we urge you to take a look at our online library at gibsondunn.com, sign up for new releases. This is a very fluid environment that is actually very exciting. It's sort of the mix of law and policy and economics all in, all in one. It's, it's, it's very exciting. Well, we have asked Adam Smith to come back and uh, for one simple reason, and that is that the world appears to be veering toward chaos. Since we spoke to him back in July, uh, it would be an understatement to say that the world of sanctions has changed dramatically. Uh, Adam, let's talk about some of these changes. Who's initiated these changes, both from an action from a country abroad, and which government branch has done what? Let's start with the United States and its reaction. It's good to be back, and uh, you're exactly right. It is an understatement, and it's every time I think about this, I still have to stop and catch my breath, uh, because the world really has changed remarkably, even in just a, a few short months. Uh, and it's, it's changed in different ways. There are different areas of sanctions that are now being sort of imposed in different ways, brand new sanctions programs that have been launched, and of course, uh, almost a competitive issue between the White House and Congress on the U.S. side as to who's actually imposing sanctions, when, why, and what the impact will be. A lot, a lot of this is still very much up in the air. Uh, brand new sanctions legislation that came out in August is still yet to be fully implemented. Uh, new executive orders that have come out even more recently from the White House also yet to be fully implemented. It's not entirely clear how this is all going to play out, uh, uh, even in the short term, let alone the medium and long term. All right, well, let's start. Let's, let's go country by country and see who did what. Let's start with Russia. Good place to start. Uh, the big news there, from a sanctions perspective, is a brand new piece of legislation that was passed at the beginning of August. Under, and to say that the administration uh, was against it, is, again, is a significant understatement. As far as I understand, outrageous amount of lobbying went into this uh, from the administration. that They did not want Congress touching this. Uh, Congress touched it, and they touched it in a very significant way. Um, the sanctions against Russia, again, if they are fully implemented, I do think it's a big if because of the way sanctions implementation works. Uh, it would change Russia in significant ways from the perspective of what is sanctioned, what isn't sanctioned. The 10,000-foot example of what actually happened, at least in my mind, and it's perhaps a little cynical, is that Congress took basically the lessons learned from the Iran sanctions program ever since 2010 and look, looked at the, those bills, which are about half a dozen bills since 2010 that had sanctions associated with Iran, and did a bit of a copy and paste, uh, removed Iran, uh, and then added Russia. Uh, these in many were the bills respects. that forced the executive branch to take specific actions like... Right. And so there were laws that were already in place that were discretionary uh, ever since 2014 uh, after the, um, the, the, uh, the Russians invaded eastern Ukraine and, of course, um, took over Crimea. And so there was the Ukraine Freedom Support Act that's been around since 2014, completely discretionary. And so what Congress did first, it basically took the Ukraine Freedom Support Act and changed a lot of the maze to the shalls, right? In other words, made it a way, made the president's discretionary authority now a mandatory authority if he makes certain findings. But broadly, 
the president's ability to sort of meander and sort of not impose these sanctions is, is much more limited now because even though the, the law is still very broad and, and, and it can be interpreted differently, much of the law is based now upon mandatory sanctions as opposed to discretionary sanctions. So it would be much more difficult, I think, for the president to sort of step back and not really impose anything. So what would be happening now? Would the, the would the executive branch be in the process of making those findings? So yeah, so so here's a couple of things that so on a regulatory basis, there are some aspects of the law that require the executive to make certain findings or or publish certain regulations within a certain period of time. So there's one component uh, that I've been doing quite a lot of work on, and that's to do with the defense sector and the intelligence sector. Uh, the new part of the law that basically requires sanctions on entities, secondary sanctions, so on entities that are engaging in transactions with those that are a part of the um, the Russian intelligence sector or the Russian defense sector. Um, and so one of the things that the government has to do is come up with a list. Who are these entities that are part of the Russian intelligence sector and defense sector? And there are different ways the government could do this, right? The government, I mean the administration. If the, gover- if the administration wants to play this very sort of weakly, they could just come up with a very limited list, right? There are already are entities in the intelligence sector and the government and the defense sector that are sanctioned for other reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, they could just basically re-sanction them for this reason and leave it at that, right? That would probably not change the the game all that much. However, the law is written broadly enough that I don't know if the government, the administration, get away with sort of has such a limited list. But if if the government goes broader, right? The OFAC is the is the entity that needs to do this and decides to list every entity associated with the intelligence sector and the defense sector, that's a lot of companies, and there's a lot of implications there, not just for within Russia, but those outside of Russia, people who rely upon Russian munitions, people who rely upon the Russian defense sector, even def- um, civilian components of defense sector industries uh, for airplanes, for helicopters, uh, for, for non-military purposes altogether. And so it really depends on how they're going to implement this. this, is why a lot of this is just unknown at this stage. And then let's move on to North Korea. Mm. So the big news about North Korea is really muscular UN sanctions have come into force now. And the reason that's important is because the way the UN Security Council works, you needed to get Russia and China on board because, of course, they had vetoes. And they didn't veto. Uh, And so in the light of continued uh, bellicose behavior on behalf of uh, the government in Pyongyang, I think China and Russia finally saw that they do need to impose sanctions in order to sort of try to put some sort of cap on this. Uh, As as we speak today, it's not clear if it's working. It's also not clear whether uh, actual enforcement of those sanctions will be will be real on either the Chinese or the Russian side of the the border with North Korea. Uh, But I think that that's that's the big news here from actual sanctions. You know, President Trump has already been saying in the light of now the sixth nuclear test, which happened after the UN Security Council passed their their new sanctions, uh, President Trump even tweeted, uh, perhaps I'm going to stop uh, allowing any trade with anybody who does trade with North Korea, right? That would be a massive secondary embargo. Um, is he, is it, could he do that as a legal matter? He certainly could. As a matter of geopolitics, diplomacy, and economics, would he do that? Is that smart to do? That's a different question. Because that, of course, would mean cutting off China, cutting off Russia, cutting off potentially South Korea and Japan, depending on, on how broadly it's framed. And that is a significant part of global economy. Clearly, more can be done in North Korea from the perspective of, of, in, of encouraging implementation and enforcement of the existing sanctions. Whether or not that, that at the end of the day brings North Korea to the table is a different question. Now, um, what's interesting about this is you've mentioned that Russia came to the table, China came to the table mm-hmm. during the UN phase. Is the EU considering considering any independent actions? And and I would note, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, many of the EU nations receive uh, a lot of their natural gas supply mm-hmm. from Russia, and 
to a great degree have grown utterly dependent um, on the resources that it provides just to cook their food. They are. And if there's one thing that's happened in the past few weeks, really, with respect to the EU-US partnership with sanctions, it seems as though, with respect to Russia and with respect to Iran, less so perhaps with respect to North Korea, there's been a major divergence, whereas sanctions on, on Iran, sanctions on Russia were originally built in concert with Brussels and London and Washington. Uh, what you've seen now with Russia and these new sanctions that came out of the Hill, uh, basically saying that you know we're on our own and in Europe you're on your own as well, right? The Europeans were very adverse to these sanctions. So will Europe sort of follow the um, the U.S. model with respect to North Korea? I mean, they will in as in as much as it's UN sanctions. There's no question the Europeans impose UN sanctions fairly robustly. Um, will they do more than that? That's not clear. Wow. So, uh, but uh, not to be outdone, Venezuela has had um, some significant changes. Indeed. Uh, let's talk about what has happened as a result of what's going. First, let's talk about what happened in Venezuela to prompt any reaction from our government. Two things have happened, really. You have a President Maduro sort of moving slowly but surely towards a greater dictatorship. Uh, and so he has convened this constituent assembly uh, that is t- designed to rewrite the constitution, empower him in ways that he is not empowered, and basically let him move forward on the Bolivarian socialist experiment utopia that he wants to sort of pursue. On the other side, you have a situation, and, and sanctions have been imposed for that reason. There, on the other side of the situation, you have many entities, including the vice president of the country, that have been sanctioned not for that reason, but because of their involvement in essentially a narcotics enterprise. Uh, and so you've got a counter-narcotics set of sanctions that are being imposed against Venezuela, and these sort of diplomatic sanctions, economic sanctions, are being imposed as well. The combination is you have a situation in one of the few countries in the world in which the president vice president are both SDNs, they're both blacklisted entities, for different reasons. Um, but they're Let's both see, and blacklisted. And STN, especially designated national, national, right? Blacklisted individuals, individuals uh, with whom U.S. persons cannot deal, absent uh, you know spe- specific licenses or otherwise from from the U.S. government. What the U.S. has done just uh, at the end of August is imposed significant new sanctions, not on the narco side, but on the, um, the diplomacy side, and basically not just designated Mr. Maduro, made him a, a specially designated national, but looked at the environment, the economy of Venezuela, and decided to build on the Russia sanctions program, interestingly enough, and impose some of those Russia-type sanctions on Venezuela. What I mean by that is that in the Russia context back in 2014, when the U.S. government was trying to pressure President Putin, they had the similar problem in as much as you had these huge companies that were the gas companies, the financial sector companies, the oil companies that were bringing all the hard currency into President Putin. And these companies were so big in many respects that they could not afford to blacklist them without the huge collateral effects on Europe and even on the U.S. So they imposed these sort of gray listing mechanisms. They basically said that you major companies uh, in the oil and gas sector, financial sector, you can continue operating as you do, but you can no longer come to the West to basically borrow money or issue new equity and debt. Right? That was sort of the, the structure, essentially. And you know, one could argue about whether or not it's been effective. But regardless, they've now transposed that into, into Venezuela. And instead of focusing on the broader banking sector, oil sector, et cetera, it's really one company, right? Venezuela is PDVSA, right? which is the, oil, the, the state oil, and oil company, which is responsible for some 90% plus of the economy of the country. And so instead of shutting down PDVSA by blacklisting them, which is what we did in the Iran context, right? We actually blacklisted the national oil company of Iran. The structure there was different. The consequences for us doing so were quite minimal in comparison. 
we couldn't do that here um, because of the same sort of reasons. The concerns of collateral consequences vis-a-vis -vis us were too great, right? There's a subsidiary of Fedevisa in the United States called Citgo uh, that brings in 10 to 15 percent of the daily oil supply the U.S. uses from Venezuela. Um, you had significant concerns, I think, also, although I don't, I'm not sure of this. I'm, I'm sure this was part of the, the analysis. You have a real concern about the implosion of Venezuela itself and the creation of massive refugee populations into very close and core allies in the United States, including Colombia, which, of course, is still recovering from post-FARC, peace deal, mm -hmm. all the rest. Mm -hmm. and 30 so it's years a, upon Colombia. Right? Exactly. And so there's a real mm -hmm. concern there about are you going to implicate, implicate major allies of the U.S. if you basically let Venezuela collapse? And so if you really go after PDVSA by basically blacklisting it and saying you can no longer sell oil, that could kill off PDVSA without a doubt. I, mean, I think it really would potentially kill off PDVSA. May not, might also kill off Venezuela as sort of an economically viable entity. And so the result was this sort of, again, a very much a Frankenstein monster sort of um, set of sanctions, the similar kind that we had against, against Russia, basically saying that PDVSA, much like Rosneft and Gazprom and the other sort of entities in Russia that were gone after in 2014 and continue to be sanctioned in this way, you can continue operating, continue selling oil, However, you can no longer come to come to the West, uh, come to the U.S. and the broader West, I guess, uh, to to issue new paper, right, debt and mm -hmm, equity, mm -hmm. and it, we'll see what that means, right? It's not clear the impact um, on PDVSA, um, it's not clear on the impact of Venezuela, uh, but it's clear now what the path is, right? I mean, I had I had thought prior to the sanctions being issued that the next step after going after Maduro and his vice president would be to go after the non-PDVSA parts of the economy, right, the big banks or otherwise. That's not what they've done. Yeah, they skipped over that and went straight to PDVSA. And so the next step, there aren't that many more steps in the gradations, right? You could, you could blacklist PDVSA, and you could also blacklist the government of Venezuela, basically make it like Cuba or Iran or North Korea. Those would be massively impactful steps because Venezuela is so integrated in the U.S. With, from the perspective of their, where they get their hard currency. Uh, but I'm not sure that's what's going to happen next. Okay, and uh, the other thing that has happened uh, recently is that there has been uh, destruction of uh, Muslim-occupied villages in Myanmar. There is now mass migration of these individuals, and I believe they're streaming into Bangladesh, if right. I'm not mistaken. Uh, and they're reporting atrocities. Mm -hmm. uh, what potentially could the government do at this point? Well, a couple of things. Um, first of all, there is the, uh, the Global Magnitsky Act that is now law. So there's at least a possibility for the U.S. government to sanction individuals, entities, enterprises, organizations associated with mass human rights violations, if that's what they wanted to do. I think the more likely outcome, to be honest, um, is not that long ago that we actually had sanctions on Myanmar. I was involved when I was in government in helping roll them back, and many people at the time thought that was premature, and maybe it was. Um, but it's with a stroke of a pen, they could be reimposed. Uh, and they wouldn't have to be reimposed on the country itself. It could be reimposed on elements of the military, the armed forces, special forces, those that are involved in the violence in the Marquean state. Um, and so I think that I certainly have heard rumors as of this morning, actually, that that's something people are considering. Um, I do know that when we were working on so the relief of those sanctions on Myanmar, it was a very effective sanctions program because at the end of the day, they, they had sort of one conduit out, economically speaking, right? They basically, the people who were sanctioned basically kept their money in Singapore. Uh, and so the way you impose these sanctions, you impose the sanctions, you basically then talk to the banks where you keep, they think they keep their money and you're going to shut them down fairly quickly. You know, is it, would it be hermetically sealed? No. Is it potential that China or others could come in and sort of provide some sort of lifeline? Perhaps. Uh, especially if the U.S. then becomes sort of on, on the outside looking in with respect to, the, to, to Myanmar. Um, 
But I think that it would be odd, at least in my mind, and perhaps a bit of a shame, if we're sitting here, uh, we see these massive atrocities uh, against the Rohingya, and we don't do anything about it. I, I think the likelihood of a military intervention from a U.S. perspective is pretty low, obviously. Um, but this is, in some respects, what sanctions are for, at least, at least in my mind, and I would hope that the people are thinking that way. Okay, so, you know, the module that we're... Uh, talking about right now is private national security law and the challenges that are facing attorneys in this space. Um, obviously, this is shifting sands. Um, things continue to change. The entire, I mean, topography of sanctions appears to change. Yeah. How does a private practitioner manage this to the extent that you can? How do you communicate with clients uh, when this kind of thing is happening? And what the heck happens to all those deals that you must be in the middle of negotiating that now appear at risk? It's, it's a great question, and in fact, there's one other component here which I didn't mention, and that is on top of all the changing regulations, you have a changing enforcement structure because OFAC has become incredibly aggressive, uh, arguably more than it's ever been on enforcement. And so just in the past several months, there have been cases that, uh, that sort of expand the remit of what is an OFAC violation with respect to can you deal with, an, with, a, with, a, non with a sanctioned person who runs a non-sanctioned company? Um, can you, as a non-U.S. person, deal with another non-U.S. person and use U.S. dollars to funnel them through the United States, or is that quote-unquote causing violations? Uh, in both those cases, OFAC seems to have say the answer is no. You can't do that without potentially facing these sorts of repercussions. So you add that to the, ch the shifting sands, the landslide that is sort of sanctions changes, and you're exactly right. It's very, very hard to stay on top of what this is, um, what the uh, guide what the guidelines really are, what the third rails are, where, 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 how you can actually stay safe. Uh, and so you have to be as honest as you can be, frankly. Mm -hmm. And so you can provide advice and sort of guidance um, based upon the language of legislation, the language of executive orders. This is where I think experience comes in. The fact that the Venezuela sanctions, for instance, were built essentially as a facsimile of the Russia sanctions, uh, people who, who were involved in building up and enforcing and implementing those sanctions at least have some insight as to how that worked that we can potentially extrapolate with respect to Venezuela. Again, the, the new Russia sanctions, because it really is a copy and paste job for so much of what we did in the Iran context. Again, understanding that policy structure, understanding what the constraints are bureaucratically to implement things in certain ways. You can have some guidelines as to where you think things are going. But the reality is until there's more guidance provided, either because there's an enforcement action, regulations have been written, more FAQs have been written, there's not much we can say other than what is the black letter here and say this is where we think it's going to go because, frankly, OFAC from a bureaucratic perspective, administratability perspective, cannot do it any other way. So do you have any thoughts on what we should expect in the future, uh, given the fact that things have changed so dramatically when we, since we spoke to you just two months ago? More rather than less, I think, is the reality. Um, I mean, th th there's a fundamental truth here that I think I might have mentioned at the time, but I think it's become even clearer. There's a reason people like sanctions. By that, I mean the administrations of, of Republicans or Democrats. The primary reason, again, this is quite cynical, is because they're free. And so because of that, and because it does speak directly to an executive authority that we know our current president sort of likes to exercise, my suggestion would be that this is going to get more, not less. Um, and I'd be shocked if we don't see more sanctions, more nuanced sanctions, you know, increasing sanctions with respect to North Korea, more nuances with respect to Russia, more nuances with respect to, to Venezuela, um, maybe new sanctions against Myanmar. I think that's all very, very possible. And then the Iran issue, again, unstated really here that we could have a whole session on this. Come October, the president needs to certify again whether or not uh, Iran is compliant with the deal. 
everything we've heard since his last certification a few months ago is that he doesn't want to do that. And as under, under U.S. law, not under the nuclear deal, under U.S. law, if that happens, what happens is that that then goes straight to Congress. And Congress has a certain period of time, 30 or 60 days, I can't remember which it is, to make a determination about whether sanctions should be reimposed against Iran. You know, we've and seen that derives from the law that Congress exactly. passed that's, that's the when they thought law. the previous administration was going to dial back the sanctions, exactly. and they wanted to keep a lot of sort of checks. Exactly. And what's, um, it's, 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 it's really interesting. You see, you know, previous administration made certain beds that this administration is now sleeping in, right? So you see the corporate pardon bill in the context of the review, um, the review bill for the Iran deal. It's exactly that. All right. Well, this is fascinating. It would be great if we could stay up to date, uh, up to the day when this podcast is broadcast. But I think, uh, as you pointed out offline, that may be a fool's errand given how quickly things are changing. Uh, But we're really glad that you came back. And there is so much to report that had you not, uh, I I think that our listeners would have missed it. So thank you again for coming. And I hope that we can have you come back in the future on yet another topic. And I think that's it. Thank you for listening to the podcast, the Standing Committee on the Law and National Security. Tune in again in two weeks for our next episode. So right now, if you're out there thinking about how much you want to practice law in a skip where you have no access to the device you're listening to us on right now, and you're certain you need less sun than other people to maintain a healthy amount of vitamin D, and you want to practice the kind of law that gives you a courtside seat to history to watch a game you can't talk about with your in-laws. Then join us again next time for the National Security Law Today, brought to you by the American Bar Association's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Check us out on AmericanBar.org forward slash NatSecurity or follow us on Twitter at A-B-A-N-A-T-S-E-C. And don't forget that every serious national security lawyer has one great book on their desk, the 2017 U.S. Intelligence Community Law Sourcebook, available for purchase where else? On our website. From all of us here, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today. Look for links to the Black Letter Laws and articles mentioned on our show today in the notes or on our website. You can also find us on Twitter at ABA Matt Sack.